0: Welcome to our plant stories, a place where we dig into the stories that plants tell us about people and places. This is a cautionary tale. Beware flipping through the Sunday papers, seeing a plant you already quite like and then sending off for a catalogue. It might have unexpected consequences. But that's to come because, of course, each episode begins with someone's story. Our plant this week is the passion flower, Passiflora. Bridget is a friend, a gardening friend. So we do talk plants, seeds, cuttings, more plants, seeds, cuttings. Her plant story resonated with me because, well, my grandmother did have a bit of a reputation for popping the odd cutting or two in her handbag for granddad, of course, when she was wandering through Kensington Gardens on the seafront in Lurstoft. So, considering our grandmothers, it was quite appropriate that we met in a park. But I'd just like to say, no cuttings were taken. How many passion flowers do you have in your garden? Oh, that's a difficult question. So,
1: I have three in pots in a flower bed which is waiting to be planted but they're not going to go there i have two self-seeders growing in a tub with an apple tree and i have three more self-seeders that i am cultivating which are in my um very tiny nursery area which is another flower bed waiting to be planted so probably around about 10 at the moment different types Uh, Well I don't know, so one is a new one that I bought because I was given some garden vouchers as a gift which was very kind so I toddled off to a garden centre and I bought a passion flower which is very tight, slightly flushed pink which is disappointingly called silly Cow which I'm a bit disappointed about so um, we're going to ignore that Um, but it's quite pretty and the rest are self-seeders which came from my last garden where I planted a blue and a white and I don't know what they are So we'll have to wait until they flower, basically. So I
0: could probably tell you next year. So take me back to childhood and tell me, describe to me what your grandmother was like. Okay, so
1: my grandma was... um She's kind of hard to put into words. She was a very elegant lady who lived in South London, which wasn't so elegant. But she I don't think I ever saw her wear a pair of trousers. I think she was always wearing a petticoat. She, I never saw her without lipstick, perfume, the works. Um, she had, she'd been a model in the war, modelling glass silk... But this is all a bit hazy, because she lived, she spoke fluent German, which no one could quite explain, and she'd grown up in the army and then become an army wife. So she'd been born in Jamaica and lived all over the place. So there were always quite exotic things in her house that had come from different places. There were things from Singapore, um, there were tales of them flying to Singapore, which took four days, because you had to keep stopping for the plane to refuel, because it couldn't go that far. Um, and there were these sort of, she said she'd put rivets in spitfires in the wall, but actually the nearest spitfire factory was in Kent and she lived in London, so that blatantly isn't true. So there was always a bit of mystery about her. Um, but she she always had a cutting on her kitchen sill. There was always something in a glass of water that was growing. And she'd come out with, which um, we never knew where they'd come from. Some of them were geraniums, but there were always things that sort of appeared um, and she would always come out with little things like, you know, put your carnations in lemonade because it makes them last longer, which sort of makes sense because it's salt and sugar. Um, and she had in her garden a peach tree, which was not really a sort of standard 1980s South London fair. It did get leaf curl, which she was a bit disappointed about. Um, and we used to go there on a Sunday afternoon, as you did once a month, as you did. And my grandpa, who was ex army, would take my brother off and they would um, go and they'd use the shed as a sentry. Post and so they would practice saluting and marching up and down the path. And my mum and my grandma would sit and natter and gossip about all the people that they knew and sort of people from here, there, and everywhere. And so I would pot around the garden. And she had growing under her kitchen windowsill, so it must have been on a pot in a pot on a trellis. This passion flower, and it was the most exotic thing I had ever seen. And I mean, they look amazing, they look like they shouldn't grow in this country, they they look sort of like they're something from a, a you know Kew Gardens hothouse or something. Um, and she had this passion flower growing there. I've no idea where she got it from. She probably, and I spoke to my mum about this and asked her, Do you know where it came from? And we thought she had probably sidled up to somebody somewhere and said, Could I possibly take a cutting of that? Because it's very lovely. And, and they would have been so disarmed that they would have said yes. Um, so this is where the passion flower thing started as well. And my first garden was very unsuitable for growing passion flower. But the second garden, I had a, a west facing garden, so had a south facing fence. So I grew them all over the fence. Um, and they spent a long time trying to get into my neighbour's gardens and dripping down the other sides of the fence and things. Um, but, yeah, so I've now brought them with me, and they're going to cover a shed instead. What is it you like about them? Tell
0: me about the flower. Oh, Why? there's
1: Well, there's so many things to like about them. Firstly, they have really structural foliage, which is just really interesting. OK, in the middle of winter, they're probably not so glamorous. Then you get flowers... Which open up and they, they just look so tropical and they're so sort of they look very mathematical as well. The the, the centres of the flowers are very symmetrical and very mathematical and I think they have a Fibonacci sequence to them as well. And then in the autumn you get these lovely orange fruit. Various people have put it into the garden and said, "What's that? Is it a passion fruit?" And I said, "No, it's not a passion fruit." And and they say they're edible but not very pleasant. Um, and then okay, the winter they don't do a huge amount but they self-seed so when they die off which seems to happen every few years you've got some ready and waiting to go um, and they're, they're just absolutely stunning people, every time someone's walked into the garden and seen it they say wow what is that and they don't look at the stunning pink rose or you know waves of crocosmia or anything they just focus in on that and they say wow what is that and people don't realise that they're actually quite hardy and you can kind of ignore them and just hack at them and they don't really mind And if a flower drops off, you can even just float it in a glass of water and it looks pretty.
0: So, just go back to your moving house. So, you had a pasture flower in your previous house. Yes. Now, tell me about what you're thinking of where you're going to put your new one. So,
1: I've got, again, a west-facing garden. My south-facing fence, though, is... We're on a hill, so my south-facing fence is not as big, whereas it's quite steep down to my next-door neighbour's garden. And I'm not sure they're really going to appreciate a flower that is just going to really want to try and get into their garden. But I have a rather large shed room thing, which I have inherited at the bottom of the garden. So I've just painted that grey, because it was pine, so it's now grey. And I'm thinking some nice dark grey planters are going to go round the doors. And then I'm going to put some trellis up. And let them run riot, really, and see how high they get. Then, because it's not attached to anything or anybody, I think it can sort of just roam, really. And we'll see what it does. But I think it'll look quite pretty if it gets onto the roof, because the roof's black, so it'll really make it stand out. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful. So it better grow. <laughs> it better like being in a pot. I've never grown them in a pot before, so it better,
0: they better perform. The way our Plant Stories works is that once we have the story, we look for someone who shares the plant passion and can help us to understand more about that plant. And as I'm learning, such people always know so much more than just how to grow it.
2: My name's Miles Irving, or Miles Stuart Irving, if you want my middle name as well, and I'm um, somewhat older than I used to be. I worked for social services for about 10 years. Then uh, about 30 years, I owned the Riverside Gym in Hampton Court and now I'm happily retired doing more plant stuff and cat fostering, which talking of which I'm amazed that Mittens hasn't joined us and messed about yet, but we'll just keep our fingers crossed that she stays asleep in the front room.
1: Bridget, do you want to do the same? I feel like we have a slightly similar background, (laughs) Miles. I spent 10 years being an NHS psychiatrist, working with adults with learning disabilities mainly, And then I retired at the grand old age of 31, which was quite a long time ago. And I have a mild obsession with gardens and plants and particularly passion flowers.
0: So this whole programme really began because, Bridget, of your grandmother's passion flower, didn't it? Just to remind us all, can you just describe that passion flower again for us that grew in your grandmother's garden?
1: Well it was under a window so it went very sideways rather than upwards because it just kept getting stopped from going up above the window and it was very blue which I found absolutely captivating because in the middle of the 1980s you didn't see very many exciting things like that, particularly not in an ordinary South London garden
0: and it was just particularly stunning. Miles, what do you think Bridget's grandmother was growing and where do you think she was likely to have got it from? Well,
2: almost certainly from the description, it's Passiflora caerulea, which uh, is a tricky word because there's many different pronunciations of it. You can also pronounce it uh, cerulea, cerulea, and uh, all the pronunciations are correct. It's whatever you want to do is is fine. But at that time, you would probably have just had that, the white version, which is Constance Elliott and Also amethyst which is an amethyst coloured. Those would be the three main ones that you'd be getting uh, from garden centres over here and blue is very much Kerrilea, which of course means blue and uh, I can hear Mittens uh, in the background there (laughs) Probably be up here shortly and in fact she is. Yeah, come on cat. She'll start swiping in a minute. And it would have had uh, orange fruit probably towards the end of the season, if you were lucky.
0: And would she have been able to buy that in a garden centre at that time, do you think? Or you have a slight suspicion, don't you, that she swiped the cutting from somewhere, actually, I think, Bridget? She had a bit of a history of swiping cuttings from places. And there was always
1: an array of jars on her windowsill in the kitchen which had various things that had been either gamefully or ungainfully removed from other people's gardens or yeah. other places.
2: Yes yeah, so a well-established tradition yeah and it's very easy to root too although a lot of people don't know what they are even then they were pretty common in people's gardens uh, which all comes back to uh, them being spread around Europe many many years ago.
0: I was going to ask you where do they originate from?
2: The Kirillia, particularly you can find in Argentina, but they're throughout South America, you also get passion flowers in Australia, even New Zealand. But, you know, South America is the main place for them. And the way they made it over here it was uh, because of the religious meaning, that uh, the Spanish priests found them in what they called New Spain, and they did their particular interpretation of the different parts of the passion flower and thought... It had a religious connotation to do with the crucifixion. So what the priests then did, they brought plants back, or it could have been seed, and then the Vatican had to decide whether they approved of this particular interpretation, and they did. So, of course, the plants became very popular and over a period of time spread slowly, uh, really, throughout Europe.
0: Can I just ask you what that interpretation was, to explain it for us? Because if you look at a picture of a passion flower, we'll put one on the website as well,
2: yeah. What are we looking for? The Spanish called it La Flor de la Cinco Jagas. I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but there we go. Or The Flower with the Five Wounds. The parts are interpreted from drawings and dried plants by Giacomo Bozio, who was a Spanish priest who was also a bit of a historian. And this is going back to Rome 1609. So they've, they've been known for a fair uh, period of time. The symbolism is virtually all passion flowers, but not all of them have five petals and five sepals. The sepals are the bits like alternating of the petals as as they go round. So that's the ten disciples, less Judas and Peter. That's the first part of the interpretation. The corona filaments, the little bits that radiate out from the middle, they're the crown of thorns. And then you've got the five stamen sticking out in the middle of the plant, which are thought to be the five sacred wounds. And the three stigma are then the nails. So it's a very... uh, you know, precise interpretation of all the different parts of the flower. A lot of people don't realise they think passion is to do with love, but of course, it's the crucifixion.
0: Interesting. This is something you knew, Bridget, as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, I did. And I'm kind of slightly torn about this,
1: because I'm not sure whether my grandma would have entirely appreciated it. I'm not sure she knew, because she was a very lapsed Catholic. So I'm not sure if she would have taken it terribly well. But they did live in Gibraltar for quite a long time, which might be, Where she'd seen them and decided she
0: liked them. Mars, how did you get into them?
2: Well, it was random, really. There's uh, a very good garden centre at Chessington, which is not far up the road. And uh, I think it was there when I was living in Teddington that I bought my first passion flower, Passiflora amethyst, which is back in the, uh, the late 80s. And it grew beautifully, loads of flowers on it. And I thought, you know, this is just a lovely plant. And then uh, I got the Sunday Times one Sunday, and there was an article in there about John van der Planck's national collection of passion flowers. And I rather foolishly sent off for a catalogue, and it's been downhill since, really, and had all these incredible plants that I ordered, some of which I had no idea what I was doing at all. And I was growing them in the kitchen where there was a kind of a bamboo trellis that I, I created at a high level. And... One of these plants in particular, I mean, it was going around like a pile of spaghetti. It was just ridiculous, just whizzing around the place. And I did a bit more research. And that particular one, uh, Passiflora quadrangularis, goes up to about 150 feet in the jungle. So it was a long learning curve and killing vast numbers of plants, which is the way that you learn. So, uh, yeah, that's how it all started, really, that, that one catalogue. And I'm still in touch with John today. He was terrific, very encouraging in the early days. And he's a proper enthusiast and expert in that he goes out into the jungle as, you know, all the best people do and brings plants back. And, uh, yeah, terrific character.
0: It's really interesting when I talk to plants people like yourself that sometimes it's just one plant and it just takes you into a whole other world. Now, I want to to give Bridget the chance to talk to you about one of the passion flowers that you actually bred which is very exciting that she actually has is that correct? I do
1: I've got a damsel's delight sitting in my garden at the moment but it's looking slightly less than delightful because it didn't like the frost very much at all.
2: No they are actually very tough so it'll probably come back from the base the main thing is don't trim it back, don't touch it, do anything and just wait till April or May and hopefully it will restart. Has it been in there for a few years or is it a new transplant?
1: It's a new garden. Oh, right. So I have a little nursery at the bottom of the garden, which is a whole pile of cuttings and divisions right. and all sorts of things that I brought with me. Nice. And I had some cereula and somewhere in there I had some white passion flowers as well in the old garden and they keep right. popping up in my fruit tree pots. They're the wildly self-seeded, but the Damsels nice. Delight was a gift, and so it hasn't had very much chance to get itself established. So I'm—I was going to just leave it exactly where it is and cross yeah. my fingers a lot.
2: Is it in the system. ground or pot?
1: Still in a pot. It's ah. in a bigger pot than it came in because my soil is terrible. So I've been mulching over winter to try. When you it. say
2: terrible, is it just lots of clay and not much else?
1: Uh, it's lots of clay. It's had. I had a nice, very nice man with a chainsaw and a stump grinder and a chipper to come and sort it out because it was full of a oh lot of very old shrubs that were very woody and sort of unrescuable and in the wrong places. Right. So it's definitely clayish and very neglected. And so it's been very, very heavily mulched. And I do have lots of worm casts, so I'm feeling very hopeful that this good. might be better. So I haven't put anything in because I didn't think they'd like it very much.
2: Yeah. Passion flowers, though, they're, they're not very fussy, most of them. I mean, some are the more sort of obscure species can be extremely difficult, but the, the common ones, the ones you can order online and get in garden centres, really they'll grow in just about anything. And the only problem with a pot, it's possible that the whole thing will freeze more than if, if it's in the ground. But
1: They're all sunk. All the pots at the moment are kind of... If you can heal a pot in I suppose they're all sunk in I've got a slightly raised bed and they're all sunk in that so that they're at least a bit sort of protected and I'm I'm hoping before I've grown them in a bed which was quite heavy clay but had a lot of mulch on it and they were yes. they were rampant I don't think my neighbors because I was on the edge of an alley so I could do what I liked to an extent and it didn't matter that they all flopped over the fence and yeah made yeah. a bit of a fuss and it was my fence so it was fine I'm not sure my neighbours in this garden, because I have two neighbours on either side, so I'm not sure they're going to appreciate my passion flowers quite as much. How much success do you think I would have growing them in large tubs?
2: Yeah, generally they'll do fine. I mean, people grow them in large tubs or troughs or whatever, but obviously the bigger the tub, the better.
1: I'm thinking something that will be quite long because i really want to put them up and cover my shed with them
2: or just put them in the ground and just chop them back regularly (laughs) that's uh, probably the best option
1: the previous ones never seem to mind a very brutal haircut
2: no the the thing about a brutal haircut is to do it when they've restarted growing where where you can go wrong in this country anyway is if you give them a hard haircut in say november or something it doesn't do them any good at all but if you wait till they start growing and leave at least one or two bits growing and, and leaves on the end, cut everything else back. And then when that catches up, then cut the other two off and they should be absolutely fine.
0: I know you've done quite a lot of breeding of passion flowers, Miles. Tell us a little bit about that. What I mean, that's quite a complicated process, presumably.
2: Yeah, well, in one sense, it, it's... Terribly easy. The plants do all the work and you take all the credit. That's that's the essence of it. I mean, I started growing the passion flowers over 30 years ago. And a friend of mine, Dr. Les King, uh, uh, used to be the uh, hybrid registrar for for passion flowers. Very clever man, uh, now retired, forensic scientist. And he said to me one day, well, I think you should really start doing some breeding, not just grow the things, but try and cross them. And all you have to do is take pollen from one flower and put it on another flower on a different plant. You know, so in that sense, it's terribly simple, but you've got to try and do something that hasn't been done before many times. Otherwise, it's going to be nothing new. Uh, An awful lot of the time, the pollen just won't work at all, that you don't get any fruit set then a certain amount of the time you do get fruit set, but none of the seed come up. And then the seed come up and they can all be terribly weak. So what sounds very simple by the time you get to the end point of producing something that's commercially viable, it's a long, long journey. It's a war of attrition. With passion flowers particularly, some other plants you can hybridise very easily and very simply and get masses of them. I mean, look at things like clematis, for example. You get a huge range of them, or orchids, of course. It's you know, there's just umpteen numbers. But passion flowers are actually, for various reasons, really quite difficult. It's the, the plants are very grumpy, really, about crossing with other plants. That's that's the problem.
0: I love some of the words you guys use to describe passion flowers. You know, between you, you know, they're a bit grumpy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, there's a friend of mine, Eric Walkman, who used to be head of the Passiflora Society International. And he also grew orchids. And his observation was that the societies are like the plants. Like orchids, everything is terribly neat and organized and sort of slow moving and Whereas the passion flower society is just a complete and utter shambles, and you know, always has been, and, and always will be, because the, the people are like the plants, you know, <laughs> going wild, all different directions, temperamental. You know, it's 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 all there.
0: So, is there a really big international community of you of passion flower growers and lovers?
2: Yes, I mean, I started a group on Facebook about fourteen years ago, which now has about nine and a half thousand members who are all mad flower enthusiasts and i've got about 14 or 15 admin all around the world everywhere from india to russia to america to help me run the group and it's absolutely brilliant because we're extremely brutal if anyone misbehaves or you know as they do so appallingly in social media they're gone you know that's it and So it's a lovely group, loads of information being shared. Sometimes new species will turn up and, you know, people who have got their first passion flower, everyone is made very welcome, really. So I would recommend it.
0: Bridget, I feel there's a group you need to join.
1: I was about to say, as soon as we finish this, I should be on my Facebook.
0: In a moment, I'm going to get Miles to give us the kind of how-to of of passion flowers, because I think every single one of these programmes is, the joy of it is I hope that by the end of it, people are also growing these as well. And I'm mindful that we find plants that can grow in gardens but also grow in pots which I think this is going to be one of those but before we do that is there anything else you want to check on Bridget before we move on to to how to grow is there anything else you've got miles and mind of information about every passion flower <laughs> whatever it is, and now is your moment
1: <laughs> so I have a west facing garden and I'm intending to grow them on the south facing side so they will be happiest I have a load of rogue seedlings that have picked up, sort of thrown up all over the place that are blue and white. And I have your very lovely Damsel's Delight. What else would, if I had to pick one, what else should I put in? Goodness. As in one variety, not one plant, because obviously there will be multiples of
2: uh, whatever. Let's have a think. Well, you've got uh, Damsel's Delight, which is good, originally called Silly Cow, which. uh, it was suitably amusing.
0: I felt a little
1: bit sad for it when I saw that.
2: <laughs> well, no, it <laughs> it's was so
1: pretty. <laughs>
2: no, it, it was uh, named after a girl I knew. I used to call her "silly cow" regularly. I don't quite know why, <laughs> and uh, she absolutely loved it and loved it being named after her. But. Commercially, the Americans were a bit grumpy about it. They, uh, the some nurseries thought it was disrespectful to women. So where it doesn't mention women, it just mentions cows. But there we go. So they wouldn't stock it, and, and so you
1: should have got a bigger plant label with an explainer on.
2: <laughs> yes, I, th- I think so. So uh, the end point of that is, uh, yeah, we just had to change the um, change the name. Yeah, so Damsel's Delight does the job. So that's a bl- now, if you want. Another white one, the best one you can possibly get is my Snow Queen, which is a polyploid version of the white ones you've got from the Kerilea. The Kerilea, if you plant enough seedlings, most will be blue, some will be pale blue, and some will actually be white. But Snow Queen is a sort of supercharged version of that with more chromosomes and everything. So if you want another white one, but a better one, or if you want something totally different, curiously, I'd recommend one of mine again. Uh, Passiflora Betty Miles Young, which I named after my mum. That's her maiden name. And that is an incredible plant, purpley sort of effort. Matt Pottage at Wisley, the curator there, has been very kind to me. And he's got quite a few of my plants there, some on the back wall of the laboratory. But also, if you go to the Mm glasshouses, I don't know if you ever go to Wisley, as as you go to the main glasshouses on the left, there's a huge plant going up on the outside, on the left-hand side. And that's a Betty Miles Young. I mean, it's just absolutely massive. And uh, that uh, and uh, Damsel's Delight and Snow Queen, uh, the hardiest, best suited ones for the British climate, really.
1: I will install all three. I will go and find the one at Wisley, but I will not steal a cutting.
2: No, no, that would be somewhat awkward (laughs) being being broadcast.
1: They might take my membership away as well.
0: My hope is that by now some of us are thinking, we have room for a passion flower. So the final part of our plant stories is always a how to grow it. And hopefully I'm asking all the questions that will get us started. How do I grow a passion flower? Should I look for a packet of seeds or a plant in a nursery? Or a friend who's got a passion flower that I can take a cutting from. Like Bridget. She's after my seedlings.
2: Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> a, fr- a friend, if you like the look of the plant that they've got, that, that's, that's fine. Uh, but then you've got to uh, master the skill of cuttings, which uh, depending on the time of year and the particular plant can be easier or harder. So that's not necessarily straightforward. Uh, so in, in many ways, you're better just buying something from a garden centre, really, because you know you know exactly what you're getting, hopefully. But really, I would, I would always buy plants from a, a garden centre or a mail order specialist, uh, somewhere like Cross Common Nursery, for example, where uh, you know, you're going to get the actual plants that, that you should be getting. Okay. Uh, seed is not good because Passiflora seed can be really difficult to germinate. Kerulea, the common one, usually is okay, but there are others that are really tough. And some of them, it will take many years before they start to flower. And also you can get a wide spread of seeds. So uh, some are really quite weak. So, uh, yeah, buy a, an established plant, really.
0: OK, if I'm going to buy a plant, when should I buy it? What time of year? Uh,
2: the new stuff starts to turn up usually in Easter. Most garden centres don't stock passion flowers from sort of from November through to well, April because they're going to look a bit messy outside over winter, not very saleable. But Easter onwards, that's when they come in.
0: Can I grow it in a pot or will it be happier in the ground?
2: Generally, they will be happier and grow bigger and better in the ground because a number of them are greedy feeders. But they can do fine in pots, but you've just got to remember to to feed them. And if they have a lot of hard water hosed into them over the years, that can be a bit problematic. So sometimes you're better to actually take the plant out of the pot. Bash it on the ground to get the earth off and, and give it a, a, a fresh start.
0: What kind of soil does it like and where does it like to be in a garden?
2: Right. When you say it, of course, there's about 600 species, some of which have of course. all the hybrids. But the ones that you're usually going to see around here, which are, are principally my ones, uh, sometimes amethyst, uh, perhaps violacea, Victoria, purple haze, there's, a, there's a, a few about, but all of them really are not terribly fussy. They just want free-draining soil and a sunny aspect. And you can put them right in next to brickwork, which south-facing for most plants would be too much because they would just get frazzled, but they can cope with really being pretty dry and pretty hot for the most part. So free-draining soil is is the thing.
0: So they're quite a good plant as we go into these potentially hotter, drier summers.
2: Yes. They're a good one to think about. Yes, yeah, they're, they're quite, quite drought-resistant, really. Oh, something else I should mention when you're buying them. Well, you've got to watch with many plants, and this isn't just passion passionflowers, when they come over, as, say, 90% of them do to this country from Holland, when they come over here, they've been grown in fantastic, perfect conditions, heated greenhouses, plenty of light, possibly artificial light as well, So they're going from a very protected indoor environment and you really need to let them stabilise at home rather than suddenly putting them out because the shock can half finish them. As I say, that's not just passion flowers, that's all sorts of other plants that people buy because they look fantastic in the florist or the the garden centre. But when you get them home after two weeks, they've had it because they've gone into shock. So uh, although you can see them from Easter onwards, you might be better waiting a bit and checking that they're growing them outside at the garden centre and they're kind of doing okay there. That would be a, a good time to buy.
0: And any suggestions from either of you, really, but things to do with the fruit? Can you eat it? Or does it again depend on obviously which fruit and which passion flower?
2: Bridget, any comments?
0: Well, I used to get a lot of orange fruit. This is one of the reasons I love the
1: passion flowers, because they are such a talking point, because people walk into the garden when they're flowering and they say, wow, what is that? And then when they see the fruit, they say, what's that? And I say, it's a passion flower. And they say, oh, do you grow passion fruit? And I say, no, it is not a passion fruit. They don't taste great. I don't think that we've eaten them. They're not harmful, but I wouldn't grow them for the fruit.
2: Yeah, clearly not whole. Not, not as or an, an edible. Well you'd not be here now, of course. But
1: quite. No. I would grow them for the fruit because the fruit looks stunning and they used to look really yeah. I had them all the way down a fence and it gave it really you know something to look at when everything else starts collapsing and deciding it doesn't really want to be here anymore because it's autumn and you've still got these lovely orange fruit. But yeah, I wouldn't grow them as an edible
2: no the uh, People get a bit confused sometimes because you know you get the passion fruit in the supermarkets which over here is almost always edgeless or edgeless uh flavicarpa crosses and some of which are absolutely delicious this particular one called esther which is really nice some lovely selections out there some come from israel some from south africa some come from Colombia. you know you can always check the label and stuff and the kerelea it's obviously the same family so they are passion fruit the, those orange things, but they, uh, they're they insipid. They're not very tasty. But my friend Sal Ladolph has done a lot of work to try and breed a sweeter version of it. And indeed, what people want ideally is something like the edgeless taste in a pot, which you could grow in your patio in this country. But in practice, that's virtually impossible to do. No one's managed it yet. It's very, very difficult because... Uh, they really want full sun and blazing sun to, to ripen properly. But there's plenty of people trying and they may eventually um, produce something that is really tasty.
0: Well, I'm very inspired by both of you. I have not had a passion flower, but I, I just find myself thinking, I, I, I've got room for a passion flower. I've got next, cool next,
1: next time I see you, I'm coming armed with
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. My thanks to Bridget for sharing her story And Miles for sharing not just his amazing knowledge, but his wonderful passion for passion flowers. Maybe there's a plant in your family that holds special memories that you'd like to find out more about and perhaps grow in your own garden. This podcast can help. Do get in touch via the website, ourplantstories.com, where you'll see a lovely photo of Bridget's grandmother and find links to Miles' website. You can also email me, sally at ourplantstories.com. I'd love to hear your story and look for the connections across continents, across history and across gardens. Plant Stories is produced and presented by me, Sally Flatman. And if you've enjoyed it, I'd love you to share this podcast with your friends so we can grow a Plant Stories community. And don't worry if they don't yet listen to podcasts because they can listen to this one via the ourplantstories.com website if you send them the link. And on the site, there's also a handy how-to guide to listening to podcasts, because there are so many lovely gardening ones out there. And here's to all passionflowers and their owners. May they, as Miles described it, ever go wild in all different directions.